0: You're listening to The Diplomat's podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host Ankit Panda here from New York City. And joining me today is a special guest we've uh, had her on before to talk about China and um this is of course Shannon Tiazzi, the Diplomat's editor-in-chief and resident China hand. Thanks a lot for joining me Shannon, always great to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, always a pleasure Ankit.
0: Well, I'm sure our listeners know why we have you back on, because uh, China's most important foreign policy event of the year, arguably, uh, the Belt and Road Forum 2.0, the second edition of the uh, conference that first took place in 2017, just concluded on uh, the final days of April. Um, and a lot's changed, right, um, about just the way in which this initiative, which is uh, obviously Chinese President Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy initiative elevated at the 19th Party Congress to the CPC Constitution, um, the way it's perceived around the world and in the in the Asian regions, certainly. So some 5,000 delegates from more than 150 countries, uh, including 36 world leaders, uh, came to China to uh, listen to what Xi Jinping had to say about the Belt and Road and about possible opportunities for their countries. There were sort of agreements and memorandums of understanding signed on the sidelines Um, But this initiative has really come not only a long way since its launch in late 2013, um, but since the first edition of the Belt and Road Forum in 2017, which was when I think there was a lot more optimism and generally a lot less kind of criticism and scrutiny of the terms of various BRI projects and loans so Shannon I guess the place to begin our discussion um, is is to look at I think what's changed between these two forums I mean obviously Xi Jinping delivered remarks here and I think people took a slightly different um, kind of tack about uh, uh, based on what she had to say this time but when you look at what just happened at the Belt and Road Forum how do you see it having changed from its first iteration in 2017?
1: Well, I think as much as China strenuously denies the whole narrative of debt trap diplomacy and is always saying, you know, that's not what's happening, countries like Sri Lanka were not responsible for the vast majority of their debt, you can't blame that on us, Um, they are taking this criticism to heart, and I think we saw that reflected in this year's Belt and Road Forum. After 2017, China had promised... Over $100 billion in funding for Belt and Road projects, you know, like sort of the astronomical eye-catching number um, that came out of it. This time, and it's, it's going to sound a little bit ridiculous to say that this is, you know, less, but relatively speaking, it is much less, um, $64 billion. And these were pretty much bilateral um, funding deals. You didn't see the sort of rollout of huge multilateral Belt and Road specific funding mechanisms that we had seen in 2017. Uh, And I think part of this is a very real reaction to the criticisms that China has been getting um, for dropping other countries and potentially unsustainable debt. But I think it's also partially a recognition of China's own domestic uh, financial situation. You have always had voices in China saying that, you know, running up debt tallies that we know these other countries can't repay, that's not only bad for them, it's bad for us, Mm -hmm. because we're not going to get repaid. Uh, And yes, you might be able to weasel out control of a port as we saw in Sri Lanka, but ultimately, you know, that's billions of dollars that you've essentially just written off. Um, And that's not sustainable for China as its um, external currency reserves are starting to lower. And that's a trend we've seen happening, particularly in these past two years since the previous Belt and Road Forum. So there is a, a shift away from, you know, essentially just throwing money at a bunch of projects and seeing what sticks, which seemed to be kind of the previous mo. The question, of course, is if the Belt and Road is something other than China ponying up billions of dollars in infrastructure funding. Um, what is that? And and that's never really been clearly defined. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that's going to be interesting to see is if China really is trying to move away from this model, is it going to be essentially the same model, but on a smaller scale with more sustainable lending requirements? Um, or is it going to be something different with more of an emphasis on kind of the, you know, soft connections, whether that's, you know, policymaking coordination or free trade agreements or cultural exchanges or things like that. Um, so yeah, definitely... Presuming that there is a third Belt and Road forum, looking at how it changes between now and then is going to be really interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I think you've hit the head. Um, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, I think the main takeaway from the BRI. Um, and I'll just note, I mean, you know, it's certainly. Visible to me um, that she was being more defensive about the fact that you know uh, the Belt and Road is not just for China; it's for everybody that participates. It's it's a you know it's a win-win proposition, as China loves to say. But I've actually sort of um, you know I think this has been a long time coming. Um, In fact, almost exactly one year before the second Belt and Road Forum at the Boao Forum for Asia last year, when she delivered his opening remarks, I remember watching those live and. What was really striking is that I think, I think that might have been the first time that she used sort of a major um, speech to, uh, you know, gathered uh, world leaders and dignitaries to explicitly make the case that China's sort of economic outreach didn't have geopolitical designs. And, of course, that message is carried through now to the second BRI. Um, and it's interesting, too, to watch what the United States has been doing on the sideline. I mean, the State Department produced this... Uh, kind of strange video uh, pointing out Very that... strange. Yeah, I don't know who it was actually for. Um, so for listeners, the State Department's um, Bureau of uh, Information released this video that was just published on YouTube uh, warning uh, YouTube viewers, I guess, to not fall into China's debt traps as if, you know, finance ministers of... Uh, various countries uh, procrastinate their day jobs on YouTube, watching straight department-produced videos. Um, but, but I mean, on a more serious note, I mean, we've seen you know Mike Pompeo, um, John Bolton, um, Vice President Mike Pence, all deliver sort of high-profile remarks. Uh, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis certainly um, delivering high-level remarks, criticizing debt-trap diplomacy, uh, just straight up front. And there's been a lot more emphasis by the United States. On on the BRI, so it 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 makes sense to see you know why she positioned himself the way he did at the second Belt and Road forum. Um, So Shannon, you you wrote a great article, kind of actually taking stock of the level of international representation at this second forum, and just from a quantitative perspective, you know more world leaders showed up this time. Um, So if you're China uh, or you know if you're Xi Jinping and you sort of look back at what happened last week at the Belt and Road forum. Do you think it was successful or not so much?
1: I think definitely it would count as a success um, for China. And even if it wasn't, they would say that it was because this is their marquee diplomatic event for the year. Um, And China just traditionally puts a lot of stock in these numbers. Uh, So being able to say, and and they kept saying that they had heads of state and government from 37 countries attend which I guess is technically true if you're counting Xi Jinping. But as I wrote in my article, when they actually gave the list of countries, um, they had included Indonesia as one of the 37, mm-hmm. and Indonesia sent its vice president, um, not President Madodo. So uh, that's what how the diplomat wound up with our count of 36. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's an increase um, over the 29 that attended the last Belt and Road Forum. Um, in terms of the number of countries who have signed... You know, MOUs on the Belton Road. You know, we're over like 160 at this point. Um, so, you know, in in terms of the raw numbers, just the general list of countries who are showing their interest in various ways, I think it's definitely a success. Um, but at the same time, you know, kind of counterintuitively, as this is g- garnering increased interest from around the world, there's also some increased skepticism and some pushback. Um, And I I wrote about this in the magazine um, this month's issue, the diplomat magazine. I think there's a tendency to confuse the two and say, okay, because countries like Malaysia um, and Pakistan might be a little more critical of the deals that have been signed with China in the past, they are backing out of the Belt and Road. And that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's taking it too far. They're trying to renegotiate these deals. They're saying, you know, we're still interested in participating. We don't think our previous government, um, for whatever reason, got the best deal that, that they could have gotten. Um, in Malaysia, in particular, there are a lot of questions over corruption, um, the previous Najib's government, and wow. it's, relationship with the 1MDB scandal that may have been tied into inflating some of these project costs with China, Um, but they're renegotiating, right? Um, They're not completely pulling out of the Belt and Road. And so I think what we're going to see moving forward is a China that's a bit more cautious about throwing out these massive loans and also recipient countries that are a little more cautious about accepting them and um, a little more Careful about what the terms are because they know that that is going to bring potentially domestic backlash at home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kenya was a good example of this. All over the Kenyan media, you had these reports that the terms of the loan that China had provided for building the standard gauge railway meant that Kenya might have to give up control of Mombasa port to China if it was unable to repay them. And there are a lot of denials from the Kenyan government, but they have also, even though they promised to release the documents, they haven't released the documents. So they haven't disproven this theory either. Um their president actually went to the Belt and Road Forum. The reports were he was hoping to get money to extend that railway even further, and and he didn't get it. Uh, So whether that was a decision made by the Chinese government or by the Kenyan government saying, you know, we're actually not going to ask for this anymore because it's too politically damaging, something had changed there in the calculations. And I think we're going to see more of that, you know, not outright rejection of China's Belt and Road, but a little bit more caution, um, which I think is good. You want governments to be really thinking through the long-term consequences of these multi-billion dollar deals they're signing.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's talk a bit more about the outcome of many of these sort of distressed Belt and Road Initiative loan projects. Uh, You brought up the example of Hambantota, which is honestly, what everybody brings up in discussions of the Belt and Road, because it is sort of one of the most shocking examples that really fits into that narrative of this being, you know, a geopolitical thing. For basically a decade, people had talked about Hambantota as being one of, you know, the quote unquote pearls in China's so-called string of pearls in the Indian Ocean. So when, of course, you see a distressed debt equity swap there uh, with the Sri Lankan government, with China taking control of the port, it sort of fits into a long brewing narrative. Um but So there was this really interesting report uh, put out by the Rhodium Group uh, just days before the Belt and Road Summit, and they actually compiled a data set looking at all of the BRI loans that had either been uh, refinanced or written off by China um, and sort of, uh, you know, basically compared all of the outcomes when BRI projects had been stressed and countries had decided to uh, approach China about potentially settling their debt or um, renegotiating it. And a lot of these projects even predate the Belt and Road because, you know, as we know, the BRI sort of became a branding for a lot of retrospective things that were underway already. And what's really interesting is that Haman Toda is really an outlier. Um, right. So it's it's the only example of an asset seizure, yet it's Um, inevitably sort of brought up in every discussion as evidence of why China is using um, its belt and road financing for geopolitical ends. that's not you know that's not me saying that BRI doesn't have any geopolitical dimension, right? So um, I think another good peg was that the U.S. Department of Defense just released its 2019 China Military Power Report yesterday. And that has sort of an interesting analysis of the geopolitical importance of BRI. So it says that China's advancement of projects, such as the One Belt, One Road Initiative, I guess they haven't gotten the memo on the renaming, um, but will probably drive military overseas basing through a perceived need to provide security for OBOR projects. And that, I think, is the right way to view it, right? I mean, we, we've we seen um, in Balochistan, the Chinese consulate in Karachi attacked by militants not so happy about the China-Pakistan economic corridor. We've obviously seen a major um, overseas military base now set up in Djibouti, which is actually one of the countries where um, a Djibouti's proportion of debt owed to China is, uh, I think, about 90% or more of its total external debt. So that's a really unique case as well. But I think there's a lot more nuance to the geopolitical angle of BRI than the Sri Lanka-Hamban Tota case really reveals. Um, so I don't know if you want to add something to that, Shannon, because I think I think that's really something uh, worth uh, underscoring here. I'm not sure if you agree or disagree with that. or
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think Hamban Tota... It's obviously an important example, um, but it's not representative uh, of of the real risks, what we're talking about, even if you're specifically talking about the, you know, quote, unquote, debt trap diplomacy angle uh, in most of these countries that have fallen into debt with China and had trouble repaying them. You know, I think Venezuela obviously right now is having a lot of trouble servicing its loans to China. Um, China is generally willing to negotiate. Um, Sometimes they'll write off debt entirely. Other times they'll say, okay, we'll change the terms of the payment or we'll delay payment. Um, You know, they just did that for Ethiopia. So you're not generally talking about, oh, you can't pay us back. Guess we're going to seize this national asset. Um, Sri Lanka was a very unique case in in that way. I think what you're talking about more is, if a country is heavily indebted to China and they are needing to ask this favor of China, you know, can you write off our loans? Can you de- we delay payment on our loans? They're going to be more likely to agree to things that China might be asking for. And this you know, this might not even be a direct one to one correlation where China says if you want X, you need to do Y but just perceptually speaking, it's it's a good idea, you know, not to piss off the country that you owe billions of dollars to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Djibouti is a good example of this. Um, last year, they basically pulled the rug out from under um, this company from the UAE and said, you can no longer operate our, our main port, we're giving this contract to China. And there's really no warning, you know, this is now the subject of a court case, because the UAE company is is fighting it, saying, you know, we we met all the requirements, we don't understand why our contract was annulled. And that's more the sort of thing you're talking about, is China may have signaled to Djibouti, hey, it'd be really nice if we could have operation of this port. And because Djibouti, as you said, is so heavily indebted to China in particular, their government may have decided, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter to us who operates this port as long as someone operates it. Um so I think that's more what you're talking about in terms of the impact. It's not going to be, you know, national assets in, in particular, you know, leaving the control of a government the way we saw in Hambantota. Toda. Um, the military basing angle is really interesting. Um, there have been reports for a long time linking, you know, Guadalupe Port, for instance, it's always kind of been assumed that eventually that's going to wind up being some sort of Chinese military base. Although, you know, China has always denied that um, there have been a lot of reports about various countries in Africa that could wind up hosting Chinese military bases. Um, so far, China has been pretty cautious about this, and you know, they opened their one in Djibouti, but they refused to call it a military base. It's a military support facility, and it's very specifically aimed at, in China's explanation, providing service for the UN anti-piracy mission they're engaged in. And that really doesn't translate well to opening up a base anywhere else. Um, So they're going to have to broaden China's own definition of what these overseas military installations purpose is and function is um, if they're going to add into this network. And that's not to say that that can't happen. And, you know, in the future, I think we probably will see that. But right now, China has been a little bit cautious. I think just conceptually, from the Chinese perspective, they've denied having any interest in this for so long that it's hard to now admit that, yes, we do want to do this. Um, You know, they've always been criticizing the U.S. for its overseas bases and you know, the question of imperialism and colonialism gets mixed up in there. So it's a a hard step for China to take.
0: Mm -hmm. So, you know, coming back to the way in which the United States has chosen to handle the Belt and Road, um, it seems to me like the U.S. could do a much better job of its messaging on BRI, right? I mean, an example being this video, of course, but also just the general statements that are made about sort of debt trap diplomacy. Don't necessarily cut to the core of what the issue is, right? The U.S. I mean, I think there have been statements from officials. I think Pompeo did a speech where he talked about things like environmental sustainability, labor standards, and some of those issues that we actually, you know, going back to the the launch of the AIIB, some of the reasons that the Obama administration had publicly stated for not joining that organization have sort of resurfaced. Um, But you know, looking at the broader trajectory of of not only the Belt and Road, but also over the two uh, Belt and Road forums, which have happened under the Trump administration and the greater increase in friction between the United States and China more generally. Um, in your view, I mean, what what would be the right way for the United States to go in sort of managing what it perceives as the geopolitical challenge from BRI? Because I think, as we both agree, there is. A component to BRI that does have a very serious geopolitical angle to it, if if not in the kind of ways that, you know, people talk about China sort of just buying up port facilities and strategic infrastructure all over the world by, you know, tricking countries into getting into uh, a distressed uh, debt arrangements, uh, which I don't think is what's happening. Um, but the U.S. explanation, I think, does kind of oversimplify things to that, right? There's been a lot of kind of paternalistic messaging that China's managing to, like, trick all these countries into taking on more debt than they can. Um, But, you know, I guess the question I'm getting at, Shannon, is uh, do you think the U.S. could do a better job on its messaging in general?
1: Oh, I, I think absolutely they could do a better job. I mean, if you look at the case of Italy, essentially the U.S. government's response to this the news that Italy was going to sign on to the Belt and Road was more or less to be incredibly want to call the Italian government stupid, yeah <laughs> to say this is a this is a really dumb decision. this is a mistake. It's going to hurt your international prestige. No government in the world, no matter how close your relationship, is going to respond well to that. Mm-hmm. right? That is not a convincing argument. Um, it it doesn't really have any sway because you're not offering Italy an alternative, Um, you know, you're not saying, okay, well, the U.S. and Europe, we can work together and we can invest in in these ports and we can help restart your economy. You're just saying, oh, I can't believe you're asking China to do that. and so that's generally the approach that the U.S. has taken to this. And that video that you pointed out earlier is the same sort of thing. It's basically like, man, can you believe that some governments are so dumb as to take on Chinese debt? Which is not helpful. It's not convincing. And it's not going to sway anyone. Like you said, it's doubtful that any foreign min- finance ministers are watching this video on YouTube anyway. But even if they were, their response is not going to be what the U.S. government wants. Um I think, honestly, some of uh, the more cautious European powers, um, particularly Germany and France, have a much um, more effective strategy, which is basically to say, you know, we're interested. Um, They're not outright antagonizing China by saying, you know, we don't agree with the Belt and Road. They're saying we're interested in theory if, you know, if this project is accompanied by you opening your market to other countries, not just other countries opening their market to China. Mm -hmm. If this comes with the same sort of sustainability and transparency standards that are already, you know, the norm for um, international infrastructure loans, you know, for example, from the World Bank or the IMF, um, if this is done in the right way, then it can be a good thing for the world and we're willing to sign on. And I think everyone knows that this is not going to be done in <laughs> what the Europe or the United States would consider the right way. Um, so in that sense, like they're never going to approve of it, right? Essentially, they're saying the same thing as the U.S., but they're framing it entirely differently, um, which is to say we could support this project if our concerns were addressed. And then that puts the ball back in China's you know, If China doesn't address those concerns, that's why you know Germany and France aren't joining on yeah. to this initiative. Uh, and that's what the US has been missing. It's basically just been nonstop attacking this project, which, again, over 160 countries around the world have signed on to. So there's clearly something attractive there. You can't just stick your head in the sand and pretend that it's not. Um, you, they need absolutely to change their strategy, uh, or it just you end up having embarrassments like the Italy situation where you, you basically send a strong threat to Italy not to do something and Italy goes ahead with it because they think that's their best option.
0: Yeah, I mean, reciprocity, I think, has been a really interesting component of the European reaction. You know, I mean, for a while, I actually thought that um, because the United States can't compete with China dollar for dollar and have its own Belt and Road, right? This isn't, uh, you know, this is 1945, where the United States' proportion of global GDP is what it used to be. Um, so really, the answer has to be asymmetric. And I think the Trump administration agrees with that. They just, they've just they just done it in a poor way, right? They've taken an asymmetric approach of just uh, criticizing the Belt and Road and hoping that uh, allies and partners hop on board. And I think that's been true of countries like, you know, India, Japan, sections of the EU, um, but not more broadly. And, you know, I think one really interesting reaction is, of course, what Japan's been doing, which is what Japan always did. I mean, Japan, dealt the, you know, did the Belt and Road before China had the Belt and Road. I mean, Japan's been using overseas development assistance and financing for geopolitical ends for decades. Right. And they've just been kind of low key about it. And all of that is still happening. Um, but again, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to compete with the kinds of loans and and especially the kinds of uh, unconditional or low conditional loans that China is able to offer. Um, So maybe, I mean, you know, there is an element of kind of the United States, uh, India, the EU, kind of these like-minded countries um, working with Japan to set up a sort of alternate source of financing. I mean, of course, you know, we have organizations like the World Bank and the ADB and the European Development Bank and uh, a national um, development finance programs as well um, but a lot of those again have been struggling to meet the kind of uh, conditionality requirements that many of these countries just don't have problems with with China. So I think maybe the combination is to use the older kind of symmetrical tools that you do have and recalibrate them to a new era where the Belt and Road is a real competitor, but also to think more carefully about what the right kind of asymmetric approach to this um, to the BRI is.
1: Yeah, and there have been some announcements like the US and Japan announced an in infrastructure partnership where they were, you know, going to promote um, high quality infrastructure that meets all of these sort of international standards. Uh, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. So even there, I think where they got the rhetoric right, they clearly their heart isn't in it. Um, so I think Washington needs to revisit some of these proposals that, that it's already made that lets it cooperate with partners who have similar concerns about the Belt and Road so that you can offer a viable alternative um, instead of just telling countries don't take on Chinese debt. You can provide them with some other way of getting the funding they need to develop their economies. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, Shannon, thanks a lot for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ankit.
0: Yeah, it's always great to have you on to talk China. And uh, for our listeners, if you uh, like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play, and now Spotify, which we're also uh, now newly available on, please go ahead and do that. That really helps get the word out about the show. And finally, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, uh, this was, again, a listener-suggested episode, Uh, just feel free to email me or uh, reach out to me on Twitter, and I'm happy to take your suggestions into consideration. So uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Asia Geopolitics podcast, and we'll be back next week with more.